Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Commercial Property Podcast. I'm Andy Miles, CEO of Riala. Now, when many people think of industrial property, they think of concrete and steel boxes let on long leases. There is a man who is looking to change that by bringing the modern, flexible, customer-led approach that has characterized serviced offices and co-working space to the world of industrial real estate. Today, we're delighted to be speaking to Julian Carey of Stenprop about his innovative serviced industrial model and how it encapsulates the big changes happening in industrial real estate. So just to give you a bit of introduction to Julian, Julian is currently Stenprop's Executive Property Director. He took this role on in 2017 after his previous company, C2 Capital, which he founded, was actually acquired by Stenprop. So he's now part of the core Stenprop leadership team and very much at the forefront of some of the changes going on in industrial. So Julian, uh, perhaps let's start. Uh, if I could ask you how you started your career and what got you into industrial property in the first place. I think property, where, where did I end up in property as, as a first place comes from uh, growing up. So I was, uh, my father was in, in commercial property and, and specifically actually in, in industrial property. So I spent much of my childhood being dragged around industrial estates. So it's kind of part of the blood and, and the DNA um, before I even sort of stepped into the property industry in the first place. Um, albeit that was never the intention. I didn't really want to go into property, but I got sort of sucked in um, by its allure. Um, so I started my career at Jones and LaSalle in the auctions and private investment team, which was um, a really great place to uh, to learn the ropes, doing many, many transactions, dealing with private individuals and understanding really what drove them and made them tick and, and why were they going into a, the bear pit of the auction market and trying to buy some some buildings. It was a really interesting time. So a couple of years in auctions and understanding that market. And then I moved to LaSalle Investment Management to work in their fund management team, um, particularly on a, a leveraged opportunity fund, which in uh, 2006, 2007 was a really interesting and hmm. relatively difficult time to spend the money. And then yeah. in 2008 and 2009 was an interesting and relatively difficult time to salvage it again. So uh, I learned an awful lot um, as part of that process. And then in 2009, August 2009, uh, I took the plunge and set up C2 Capital. So, and that sort of ended my corporate career up to that point. Um, and C2 Capital was a, a joint venture with a family office. Uh, called the Ellis Campbell Group, and uh, we set the company up together. And then over the course of uh, eight years, um, we grew the business and uh, and then ultimately pre, pre the sale to Stemprop in 2017. And I've been there ever since. Great. Must have been um, uh, quite a leap of faith starting a business in the depths of the financial crisis how did you how did you kind of pluck up the courage to do that most people were just trying to batten down the hatches and not get fired at that point in time so it's quite brave yeah i think you know in hindsight i was i was pretty young to to do it i think and and relatively inexperienced but i think the benefit of being young is i didn't have a lot of overheads um and a lot yeah. of commitments and so i was maybe more capable than uh, somebody with more overheads to to take that risk um, the, the sort of the reason for doing it was was very much that there was an opportunity, um, and uh, and so I just took that that opportunity and and ran with it, and and that was very much working alongside an established family office who could seed the vehicles that we were looking to put in place, and and then and an idea, um, and it all started with uh, commercial auction underwriting actually, so going back mm. to my auction days, um, which is all about guaranteeing the sale of an asset um, for a seller before it goes to market, so providing liquidity. Um, in a market which, if you take cast your mind back to 2009, was was somewhat lacking liquidity. Yeah. So that was the idea which really kicked it all off. And, and our first two funds were underwriting funds. 
Um, and then from there, we sort of spun into uh, just normal traditional real estate investment work and, and running mandates for people and then subsequently multi-let industrial. So what, what was the um, thought process or sequence of deals that took you from a more kind of general, a more generalist investment strategy to quite a focused one on industrial and then I imagine on multi-less industrial. So yeah, industrial was always on my mind. It's a sector which, like I said, I, I sort of knew and loved from, from my childhood really and, and, uh, and through my father. And so it was a sector I could see a lot of opportunity in. But at the time, uh, C2 was relatively small and we were really focused. It was a very opportunistic time in the market. You know, you could go out and if you pick your, your deals right, you could make money in almost any sector as, as the recovery came through and, and as asset management played out. And really as the cycle matured, as we headed into sort of 2014, um, the time came to, to focus, really. And, and you couldn't just be a, a generalist and find deals all over the place. You know, the, the low-hanging fruit had gone um, and it was time to really back a horse. And the horse that was closest to my heart and, and I felt had the, the most opportunity was, was multi-let industrial. So um, I was, again, you know, you, you sort of, is it luck or is it, uh, is it judgment? But mm. I was... Um, Both, probably. Yeah, fortunate <laughs> enough to, to be introduced to Morgan Stanley. Um, and uh, we decided to enter a joint venture together, investing into multi-let industrial in the UK. Um, and that really was was what a really transformational part of, of C2's journey, where we became a specialist and with real focus and, and much greater firepower. And so it was a, a really sort of, yeah, transformationary moment for us as, as a business, but it was the decision to, to focus, which was sort of pivoted us in that direction ultimately. And focus, I think, going forward is, is really, really important um, within real estate. I think it's, for me, it's been a, a really uh, enjoyable thing to sort of get rid of all the noise. You know, I don't need to know anything about, in theory, about a lot of, all the other sectors. I can really specialize on one thing. And every day we get up and we think about multi-led industrial and, and service in multi-led industrial. And, uh, and it's really nice to have that purity of focus and clarity of vision in everything you do on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's been both an enjoyable and a investment you know, a good investment, I guess, for us as a business. Great, that's very interesting. It's very, you often, if you read books on investment or business in general, uh, a theme that comes out time and time again is focus. And that if you want to be really successful, you have to be super focused either on a, a sector or a, or a theme or a certain type of deal. So that's quite interesting to hear. Um, just like digging in a bit more deeply on why you got into multi-let industrial, what... Uh, what structural changes could you see playing out that led you to think that was a good investment thesis? Because you were, uh, uh, there were other people doing it at that time, I think. Yep. Um, maybe uh, certainly the London metrics of the world had, I think I'm right in saying, had abandoned their retail investments by that point and they were just focusing on industrial or they're probably at the larger end of the market. Um, Blackstone were getting into the sector, but uh, in terms of thinking about it as a, a high service business, certainly on smaller industrial units, it feels like you guys were quite ahead of the curve there. Um, yes and no. I mean, I think what, what we felt in casting our mind back to, to 2015, 2014 was that pre the global financial crisis, there had been quite a lot of the sort of service industrial model um, being developed. So whether that was in industrious um, with their sort of FlexiLet model or B-Serve for Brixton or Evans Easy Space, you know, there were a number of specialist, mostly listed industrial businesses bringing service into the industrial sector. And, uh, and those are in the days where, you know, the, the serviced office market was sort of similarly undeveloped yeah. and sophisticated. And, and so the, the office, the industrial market, you know, the office, I think, was always slightly ahead, but they weren't so dissimilar. 
And what we saw in the global financial crisis is that there was too much leverage in the industrial market as a whole. I mean, it was throwing off a lot of income and with great income, you've got great debt. Mm. Um, and that when the music stopped, uh, that's really one of the reasons why a lot of them got carried out. And so we saw, you know, Brixton bought Industrious, then, you know, sold part to Dunedin. And then ultimately Brixton ended up getting bought out by Seagro and, and, uh, and so forth and so forth. So um, all the assets, all the large chunk of the assets ended up in private equity ownership. And rather than continuing with this sort of permanent capital, long-term service industrial strategy, which a lot of the players were working on at the time, it went straight back to, look, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to hold it for a period of time, and I'm going to sell it. And so I want liquidity, and I don't really want to spend a lot of time and money on an operating platform, which I may or may not get value from in, in the future. So we felt in sort of fast-forwarding back to 2014, 2015, that there was a lot of good work going on, which was proving to be very profitable um, back in sort of the previous sort of 2004, 5, 6, which hadn't been continued. Um, but at the same time, we had the benefit of hindsight from the serviced office market, which actually through the global financial crisis had continued to grow, um, continued to evolve and, and become more sophisticated and prove, I think, beyond any reasonable doubt that there's value in giving customer service, uh, flexibility and, and frictionless transactions, et cetera, et cetera. And so we felt very empowered by the fact that look, clearly this was something which was working before in the sector it's something which has been proven outside of the sector and then really it's something which can be picked up and run with again so that was a big part of our our mantra going forward so that's why we focused on sort of multi-led industrial and but beyond that mm. there's just sort of the general structural imbalance um, going on in on industrial which i think everybody's really familiar with which is there's a very limited supply in multi-led specifically because the mm. cost to build is so high um, so outside of greater london there really is no new supply um, land availability is incredibly tight and, and our, all of our buildings and, and, you know, one of the key part of our thesis is always buy in and around densely populated areas. And in those areas, any land which is available nearly always goes to residential, partly because it's the highest value um, driver, but also it's the most politically sensitive. Um, and so there's a, a really um, inelastic supply situation. And then on demand side, what we've seen in the UK since the turn of the century is an explosion in SME businesses. So I think the uh, ONS statistics is something like a 70% growth in the number of SMEs in the UK since the turn of the century. And that, the SMEs is our, is our lifeblood, it's our customer base. And so we have a lot more customers now than we had at the turn of the century. And, and that's largely driven, uh, in our belief, by communication technology. You know, small businesses can thrive in networks doing roles which previously could only be done by a company under one roof. Because um, communication technology, email, mm. you know, all this sort of stuff has facilitated that. But also, there's this big change in, in association with, with e-commerce, where we were seeing a shift of occupiers from other sectors moving into multi-layer industrial. I mean, multi-layer industrial is great because it's close to market and it's incredibly versatile. Whereas, you know, and it's cheap. It's the cheapest form of space. You know, our average rent is still only five pounds a foot. Um, and, uh, and what we were seeing, you know, classic example is, you know, that music shop, which used to be on the high street selling to the local town is now occupying an industrial unit selling to the whole of the UK, but still offering a shop based service to those people in the local community. So covering both bases. And, and, and so that's just a simple example of, of a myriad of, of different companies who are really coming into the space. And so we've seen a structural shift and a, or really in very many ways, a gentrification of the tenant base in the industrial market. So growth in demand and very constricted supply. In fact, in I think CBRE research was saying they think that the supply in the multi-layer industrial space has diminished um, over the last sort of five to ten years as, as brownfield land gets redeveloped to residential. So it was really that underlying economic argument. We think there's going to be growth um, coupled with this opportunity on the operational side made it a, a very exciting prospect for us. 
That's fascinating. So you've got, uh, you're obviously in an area with very strong supply demand fundamentals. Do you see any of that? Do you see that changing in the short term or particularly evolving? I don't think that the supply side is going to change. I mean, we, you know, we think that rents need to grow 50%-ish on average um, before new supply can, can in any scale come to the market. There's always pockets and there's developers who can do it in a very cost-effective basis, but they're few and far between. Um, on the whole, why, it's why, very limited why, why supply. Why is that? So you're basically so, uh, tr- tr- trading off a site, sites that wouldn't be viable to rebuild at the, to the current specification. Yeah, it's a few different reasons. I mean, one of the unique characteristics of multi-let industrial is there isn't any, de- any design evolution. So as a result of that, there's no functional obsolescence either. So what you build... 20 years ago is functionally or fundamentally exactly the same as what you build today. Materials might be slightly different, it might look slightly different, but fundamentally it's a, a box, four walls, a big door, a little door, roughly six meter eaves, because that's what the customers want. And, uh, and so it means that a building which is 20 years old doesn't have, from a functional basis, materially different use value to the customer than a brand new one. They can extract roughly the same amount of value. And that's very different to other sectors. So if you look at something like offices, um, you know, the fact that we're sitting here in, in the Shard today, you can tell you're in a very modern office building. The ceilings are a nice height, the air conditioning is working really well, the LED lights and, the, and all this kind of stuff. Whereas if you were sitting in a building which was 20 years old, you'd know it. It would be lower, the lighting wouldn't be so good, the m and is not so efficient, things like that. So that's functional obsolescence through time. So a new building can command a much higher rent than an old building where design is evolving. With multi-let, that is less the case. There is always a slight premium for new people like new shiny things over secondhand, but fundamentally, it's not a very big gap. And so for people to bring new supply in the market, the wider market also has to be close to that, that rent. So we think on the whole, that means why we think there's going to be a lot of growth. Because the rent, we think you need, typically need seven to eight pounds a foot to justify a multi-let scheme. And our average rents are five. Yeah. So that's why we think... Broadly, the market needs to see 50, 50% growth before sustainable supply can come in. Um, like I said, there's always exceptions, but broadly that's the case. And I'm generally talking outside of Greater London because Greater London has a, is different. The rents are already you know, going on £20 a foot, so it's, it's different. Um, so that's sort of one side of the, the argument. Um, so do I think things are going to change, going back to your, your question? Not really. I mean, I think the you know UK um, economy is is the big driver of UK SME businesses ultimately. So um, a significant recession of, sort, of sorts would have an impact upon the demand side. Um, we've been outgrowing UK GDP in terms of rents for some time now. Mm. Um, so I think that even with limited levels of of growth and, and GDP performance, we can still deliver. Uh, the supply demand amounts outweigh that. Um, we believe going forward. So now we it's not going to be an overnight thing. Um, we think this is a long-term shift uh, and structural change. And that's really why we're, we're in it as a, as a long-term capital investor. We mm. think it, it fits very well with our business model. You're probably in a market where even if there was a recession and it took the wind out of demand, that's only a temporary short-term effect versus the structural changes that are happening that are ultimately far more powerful. We, yeah, absolutely. We believe so. And I think, you know, and as part of the insurance policy against you know the, the economic headwinds, that's why we're also developing the service industrial model because we think yeah. that there's a lot of gains to be had there and an advantage in the market. So, you know, we want to be the, the best performing company in the sector rather than you know just following the sector up and down. Yeah. And I think that gives us that opportunity. 
So let's talk about some of the uh, operational challenges of managing a serviced industrial model. Because I imagine uh, you have a vast number of leases and a vast number of ongoing lettings churn to manage. Um, how do you how do you manage to do that in a cost efficient fashion, which doesn't involve you building a gigantic back office with a vast number of people working there? Yeah, it's very challenging. That that is that is the challenge, right? And I, and I think that's historically always been the challenge of multi let industrial. It is very uh, expensive and time consuming to to manage efficiently. I think. Um, I refer to multi-let industrial very much as a high volume, low margin business, right? So, you know, every year we might renew 200 leases um, and, you know, each lease might be on average £18,000 a year. So it is very high volume, relatively low margin, making a few thousand pounds here, a few thousand pounds there. But there's it's nothing not, wrong. It's not dissimilar to running a buy-to-let portfolio, actually. No, I mean, it's if not. You ran a, if you run a buy-to-let portfolio in London of two-bedroom flats, you'd probably be talking leases that sort of size which is enormously operationally intensive. Absolutely. Student accommodation, yeah. hotel bookings. You know, there's lots of industries out there which are high volume, low margin, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's a sort of, I think there's a, often a perception that low volume, high margin is the way to go. But actually, I think both can be equally good business strategies as long as you execute them in the right way. So you know, the, in a high volume, low margin business, technology is your friend. Um, that's how you, you make it work. Look at Amazon, right? That's um, a good quote. I have to quote you on that. <laughs> yeah, but it, it really is. And, and I think that's why uh, we're very focused on technology. That's why we're implementing technology wherever we, wherever we can um, within, yep. our, within our business. And the, uh, the same is true on, on sort of customer service and, and focus on the customer, that technology enables us to provide customer service, which actually would be very difficult without it. So, I mean, a simple example might be if you've got a, an iPad which um, has a list of products on it that you know somebody can go and when they do an inspection they can say look here's a here's a list of options for you Mr Customer and you can choose the ones you want and this is how they all work um, that's nice and easy to do and you can roll new products out via the iPads and they're just options when people come to look at them in a traditional model you'd have to train all of your staff everywhere every time you bought a new product out you'd have to give them the mm. background information so they can then go and regurgitate off the top of their head at a sales meeting so there's an awful lot of benefits for for utilizing technology the challenges with multi-let um, for things like customer service uh, is because you have a very wide array of assets, small value assets spread over a very large geographic area. Um, and that makes it very challenging. So I think one of the big sort of challenges of serviced industrial versus serviced offices is that with a serviced office, you might have a 50 million pound asset with 250 customers in it. Mm. Um, and you can afford to employ somebody on site who can write and sign the contracts, can learn the sales pattern, can service those customers in a really cost-effective way. Um, with multi-led industrial, you know, to service 250 of our customers, you'd have to be covering the best part of quarter of the country. Um, that's a lot harder than walking up the stairs. So yeah. it, it's a it's a really specific logistical challenge. Um, and again, that's why technology is so important. You know, you need to provision the opportunity for customers to self-service more. They need to be able to surface their information more easily. They can't just go and ask somebody for help. Um, there's there's lots of specific challenges around serviced industrial, which you don't get in, say, the office market or student accommodation or hotels, um, where the assets are more concentrated. But that's why technology is so, so important. Fascinating. So let's talk about, um, uh, say, two or three areas where you've you've had a particular problem and how you've tried to solve it 
with technology and some of the challenges you've had doing that? Because I think that's probably, uh, it's definitely interesting for our listeners and it's interesting for other property firms going through the same questions as kind of how do we, how can we get benefits from technology and what do we do about it? Is this a bit where I plug Riella? <laughs> no, you don't have to plug Riella. It'd be nice if you did. <laughs> and I think it's a, it's a, actually it is a good, is a good case study, so I, I will use it. Um, so we have this challenge where, like I said, we've got many assets. So at the moment, we've got 63 estates, I think, around, around the country. Um, and a lot of those estates have two letting agents on them. So you know, easily, we're, we're north of 50 agents um, yeah. working as our partners on the ground. And they're really, really important. They're, you know, they are normally are your first point of contact with your customer, and, and first impressions count. Hmm. And so one of the challenges we found is that we, were, we, went, we went to the market and we said, like, let's download all the letting particulars for all of our buildings, which are on the market at the moment, and have a look at them all. And the quality disparity from the best to the worst was huge. Um, the best, I would say, were, were good. Um, generally, we rate good as it gives the tenant a total occupational cost on a monthly and annual basis. That, that is, in our eyes, good. And it has a photograph of the building. Um, that's a step in the right direction as well. The worst wow. were... So your, your, your kind of your basis for good is even itself quite low. Yes, it's just good. At the time it was, yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. And, but, uh, you know, and the worst, you know, there were no particulars. Um, or, I mean, arguably worse, it was, you know, unit space to rent one to 100,000 feet, picture of the wrong building, you know, that kind of stuff. Phone number didn't work, no email address, that kind of thing. So there was a really big disparity. And so one of the challenges, we said, well, you know, we can't have our first point of contact being so uh, unbelievably variable. Um, we're trying to build a, a business here with and consistency with how you deal with things is, is key to that. And so um, the decision we made is that, well, actually, we'll just generate all our own marketing particulars. And then we'll provision those to our agents and they can use them or they can produce their own, but we're going to verify them and check they have certain minimum standards apply. Um, and that's really, really important to us because it protects our image, our brand, our consistency, and it gets the relationship with the customer off on, on the right foot. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the I think the standard in the market is is relatively poor. And I think it's, it's justifiable to some extent. These are small suites where agents are getting paid pretty small fees on average. So, you know, it's one thing when you're getting paid £50,000 to let something. It's another thing when you're getting 500 mm. um, So... So we took that view and, and Riala was really, really key for us because that provided us the platform that we could generate those particulars on a really consistent basis. So, you know, we went out, we wrote particulars for every unit in our portfolio. We got the, the images brought on board, you know, within 48 hours, we had a full set of marketing particulars with 10 photos, a plan, um, a look around, uh, 360 spin view, you know, the description, everything all online and then pushed out to right move our own website. And we can even push to our agent's websites if they want us to. So that was something where technology has really changed the way We've gone about doing that. I think historically we'd be manually producing our own particulars on every every building, and that would have been incredibly time-consuming. So it's a good example of where we had a challenge, but also where we solved it. I think using technology. Um, another thing uh, has been interesting, or something which we're battling with at the moment, actually, which is I think quite a big challenge, is data mm. um, and how you know you how what, you monitor. What kind of data? I so only ask because people use the term data very loosely in this industry and not a huge number of people who use the term data even know what big data really is. I think, you know, it's all kinds of data related to real estate, if I'm honest, but, but the, the sort of thing I'm thinking in mind is actually your, your sales pipeline data. Right. Um, so uh, we're relatively widely publicized. We use VTS as a, as a tool. Yep. Um, and that's been really profoundly helpful in terms of digitizing what our letting agents are doing. Um, so we now know every time a viewing has been done immediately. 
Um, we'd have to wait to the end of the month and nothing gets missed. You know, somebody was telling me an anecdote the other day about when they were an agent. This is quite a long time ago, to be fair, um, where at the end of the month or the end of the week, their secretary would go through everybody's diaries and count the number of viewings they'd done that week. So, report <laughs> back to, you know. so those days are, are, are thankfully gone. Um, but it's still very difficult when you've got an industry where, you know, if you're a letting agent, you're there to let space. Um, that's mostly the mindset that we find within within our agency partners, um, which is great. You know, we want them to let the space, don't get me wrong. But actually a big part of it for us is having the data about, okay, well, what are we late? How long is it taking to lease? How many viewings are we doing? What's our um, transfer rate between leads which we generate online versus leads we get from boards versus leads we get for, for agents? You know, where, where's the success? Where should we be spending the money? Yeah. You know, where's the conversion? It's incredibly highest? valuable, right? Because vacancy, vacancy is an expensive problem. Correct. So if you bring it down even slightly, problem. it's super valuable. It's, it's massive. And so, you know, we're then coming back to our, our agency partners and saying, look, and it, it, we want you to let the units, absolutely, we want to carry on doing that. But we also want you to give us good quality data um, that we can then help you let the buildings faster. Um, and that's a that's a big change, you know. And I think that the real estate industry, from a landlord perspective, hasn't been asking for data for long. Mm. Um, and I think that in time, um, everybody in the property market will get used to pr- pr- thinking, asking themselves these questions: as in, what data do I generate as my job? Who relies on that data? How do I give it to them? What data do I need in order to do my job? And now I have this data, or now I've provided that data. How does that change what I do? What should I do differently? Are there are other tasks I can now do which are higher value now I've now I've got control of that so there's a mm. lot of I think data related questions which people are increasingly asking themselves and, and need to ask themselves um, as, as part of their day-to-day job so yeah that's been a, that's been a big challenge and we're sort of grappling with that and getting on top of it and and it's it's amazing what you learn um, about your business just from a little bit of data yeah fascinating is that if you're um, uh, implementing technology solutions uh, what is the biggest challenge of doing that? And it sounds like part of the challenge is cultural. You've got to get people across the industry uh, behind the change. Um, is, is that, I don't want to put too many words in your mouth, but is, the, is, is, is culture a challenge? And what are some of the other challenges? Culture is the biggest, definitely the biggest thing, both, both external and internal. Um, like I said, I picked a little bit on the agents. I don't mean to that you know they do do a great job, and and yeah. uh, and you know they are very much our most important partners really in what we do. But internally as well, you know we've we've spent a lot of time and effort on in, on data culture, <laughs> teaching our staff why data is important, suggesting things they might want to read which are relevant to that. And actually, it's been really effective. You know, walk around the office today, and and you hear people having conversations about data sets and you know how that how that's going to work in the in the analysis of what they're doing and how they're sort of uh, you know, we're talking about the cl- you know the cleanliness of the data sets that they're working on and all this kind of stuff and data integrity and using words like that. So that's been really key. I think for me, there's been a sort of a two-stage process on technology. There's been the sort of the first stage easy piece. So it was very easy becoming a customer of, of Riala and VTS and, and the, the financial decisions you're making as part of that were quite small. Um, and it was quite simple you know okay you're going to provide us with this great we need that we, there's a small transaction a small amount of money changes hands and, and we have it um where we are as a business now is we're saying that actually we need to make some much more profound changes to our systems and processes in, in order to be the business we want to be um in the future and for us the challenge there was skills um we didn't have the skills in-house to be able to do that originally and so the biggest change for us over the last six months has been recruiting people who are capable of, of buying 
specifying and, and effectively implementing major software changes within our business. And it's, uh, it's been very transformational for us. How do you even know where to start? I mean, it's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult hiring developers anyway, or, uh, or, or people or CTOs with the capability to piece together systems to identify the right components and, and piece them together to create a software system that works for you. I mean, how do you, with a real estate background, how do you even start to tackle that challenge? Yeah, we, um, well, we, we brought somebody in who had some expertise and uh, in terms of buying the sort of system that we needed to buy. And, uh, and it's been an interesting process because it's been a lot, very little of it has been about technology. Uh, the vast majority of it is about looking at us as a business and being incredibly forensic and incredibly detailed about what it is that we require as a business. You know, what is it that we do? What is our target operating model? How is it that we get there? And when we get there, what do we need to be done? You know, what are we going to automate? What are we going to do us internally? What are we going to do externally? And all this, this sort of level of detail. And only when you've done all of that, you can start saying, okay, well, let's figure out, okay, we want to use technology to solve this problem. What technology solutions are out there and going out there to providers and, and saying that this is what I need it to do come back to me and tell me whether you can do that for us. So that's been a really interesting process. Now you can do that by recruiting somebody, which is what we did. And we, mm. I think yeah, we're really happy with the guy we got and he's, he's, he's doing a fabulous job. Or you can bring in a consultant and there's plenty of good consultants out there who can help you with it. But it's very much more a management consultancy piece than it is a technology consultancy piece initially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's very, very difficult. And I think there's a lot of pitfalls and we may well fall into some. I think, you know, you've got to expect when you're investing in technology that not everything's going to go right, you know. And, um, but I think the gains are so significant, uh, certainly for a business like ours, that, that uh, it warrants the risk that, that goes around it. But as I said, as a business now, we feel before we were comfortable making you know, investments into technology, maybe five, 10, 15, 20,000 pounds at a, at a time. And that was sort of where we were at. You know, now we're in a position where we feel we can spend many magnitudes of that much more confidently um, in terms of our, our plan and our strategy. And that's been a big, big change. That's very interesting. So as you feel like you learn what you're doing, you feel comfortable making bigger bets, which is only natural. Because if you're writing off 20 grand is one thing, writing off 200 grand is, is another. another. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think it's part of it is, is not trying to make a surveyor do everything. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think we, we, we started very much traditional real estate business. You've got some accountants and you surveyors sitting in an office running a real <laughs> estate company. And I think that's where a lot of us have been and, and, and uh, maybe still are. And I think one of the changes that we've made is saying, well, actually, let's not try and put a, you know, everything in the surveyor's box. Let's let the surveyors get on with the surveying. And then if we need somebody who's really good at technology, rather than finding a tech literate surveyor, let's find a yeah. technologist. For that role and, and I think that's been a big part of the sort of maturity of our platform and enabling us to do some of the things that we want to do yeah I, I totally agree with that we see a lot of our clients uh, battling with the problem of where to start they, they look at some of their internal processes and this is true across both agencies and uh, and owner companies owner owners of all kinds from family offices to private equities uh, private equity and funds and they have a general sense that some of their processes are maybe inefficient or could be done better using technology but the question of where to start do i buy a solution do i hire someone do i hire a consultant do i do a strategy project those are all questions which i think people find they're very uh, open-ended questions requiring a lot of judgment that a lot of people find hard to answer and it's 
it's quite easy to buy a solution from the slickest salesman to present to you if you have five different prop techs in to present when you don't really have a clue as to whether that solution is right for you. Uh, and of course, it's a minefield because most most technology companies will sell you anything if they think they can get away with it, regardless of whether you need it or not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean how many times have you bought a piece of software where you bought it, everything was great, it's fantastic, and you install it, and then you realize it doesn't actually do exactly what you thought it was going to do or quite everything that you needed it to do. And then you end up in one of these situations where you're trying to bodge together some kind of solution to sort of solve that last bit of the, of the jigsaw. It's yep. much more sensible to look at what your problems are, articulate them as requirements, and then before you buy the software, you've got to tick off every single requirement on your list, and then you know. And so it, it's it's all very logical. And I think I think at Stemprop we've been fortunate because we're we're not a big company, you know, but we're not a small company, and so we have the resource to be able to do it properly. But the same, but we don't have the complexity that it's incredibly difficult. So. We, we could recruit one person who can transform the business and help us with this process and, and set us off on a new path. I think if we were, you know, a company five, six, ten times the magnitude of, of Stemprop, you'd need a team of people. And that's a much more difficult thing to do. Um, yeah. Or you have to bring in external help. So it's every different business has different challenges. That's why there isn't an answer to the how do I do it. It's because it's all about, well, what is it that you're trying to achieve? How big are you? What are your goals? How much money do you expect to spend? I think, I think one of the most important things is you've got to have support for it from all levels of the organization. There's a lot of talk about you've always got to have C-suite backing for these things. Really important, right? If you, if you don't have the, the top level people really pushing for technology change in your business, you're very unlikely to achieve it. But it's not enough coming from the top. It also has to come that the sort of the middle tier, the lower, every yeah. tier of the organization has to want and be open to the change. And, and that's that's where the cultural piece really comes in. Yeah, that's uh, that resonates a lot. I mean, so classic is installing a CRM com- a CRM system, which uh, most companies of a certain size around the world will do or will consider doing these days. But if you don't have uh, if you don't have your you know your your most junior team members bought into actually using the CRM system day to day and logging their conversations with customers in the system, it's never going to have any value, regardless of how much senior management want people to use it. Exactly. Um, and I've I've it's funny I've I've you see that in technology companies just as much as you see it in non-technology companies where uh, even big technology companies don't have a culture of their Salesforce using using the CRM. No, and, and CRM is such a, a powerful tool. It's a really good example as well where we've, the other thing which has been quite a learning process for us because we're doing big CRM projects is um, it's, not, it's not like a lot of things where you can procure a service and the service gets done. So, you know, you think when we buy a building, we go, right, let's go and get a lawyer. And you get a lawyer and you send them all the documents and then you say, right, just come back to me and tell me what the, the problems are and, the, and help me negotiate the contract. And, and a lot of the, the, the sort of the legwork is done by your provider. With technology solution products, it's very much equal work. Mm. You, if, we, if you're going into a big CRM project, you've got to expect that your staff and your best staff are going to spend a material amount of their time for a very long period of time configuring that system. Otherwise, you won't get out of it what you want. And, and I think it's... It's understanding that process and really being open to that and, ex- and experiencing. Whereas if you, you can buy a CRM product off the shelf, but it won't really be very fit for purpose. Um, so it's about understanding the, yeah, the procurement process. It's, it's, it's not something which is familiar to surveyors and, and real estate people. It's a completely different thing. And, and this is what I felt Correct. As, yeah. as a surveyor. It's I was like, culturally a alien 
to most of us. And even after uh, five years of a, a gradual acceptance of more technology and commercial property, it's still pretty alien. It really is. It will get there. It'll get there. It'll get there. It's just a que- it's just a question of how long it takes. It's not an if. It's a it's a when. Just thinking uh, back to your uh, the deal you did a couple of years ago, uh, C two your original industrial investment business was acquired by Stenprop. Um, talk us through how that happened and the rationale behind it. So we, we built the portfolio up for over a couple of years with, with Morgan Stanley um, and. Uh, We'd sort of reached a point where it had critical mass, um, and it was it was an approach really from from Stemprop and an opportunistic, you know, timing really that that it worked for for our partners at Morgan Stanley to exit, and uh, and it made sense for Stemprop, who originally were looking at it just as further diversification to their already pretty diverse portfolio, um, to to sort of came about that way, and so so the, the deal, the real estate deal. Um, happened first, and then through the due diligence process for Stemprop, we, I got to know Paul Arnson, who's our CEO, very well, and explained to him uh, that in my eyes, you know, this was, wasn't the end game. Um, mm. This is really just the start. We've we finally reached a point where we have some critical mass, and now we have an opportunity to really push into the sort of service industrial model and and grow this portfolio further and create a lot more value. And so. Paul went round, saw every asset in the portfolio, really got under the skin of it, and and at the end of it said, "Look, you know, I I, I share your vision. Um, I think that sounds sounds really interesting. Um, and actually, we will we will commit to growing this portfolio going forward. So we'll sell some more assets, and and we'll commit to to putting some more assets, sort of more money behind the industrial story. But we don't want to do that on an outsourced managed basis. Um, if we're going to do this, we want to be part of the the management team and and the, the platform." And so they wanted to buy C2 Capital. So that's that's how the transaction to buy C2 Capital came about. Um, it's reasonably well published how it worked. And, and yeah. I, uh, we all came over and and, uh, and I took all the consideration for that actually in shares. Um, so very much aligned with, with Stemprop going forwards. Um, and then really it took about six months after how, we joined. How big was Stemprop pre-acquisition and what sort of increase in scale did it give them? So they went from about... 600 and something million of assets to about 750 as part of the transaction. Um, and then we've sort of delevered actually since then. Uh, so we took the leverage up to do the transaction. We've now come back down. In fact, we've come more than down. Um, but it was it took about six months after the transaction for us to really, or for, for the existing Stemprop team, Paul and, and Patsy, the CFO at the time, to really see the performance coming out of the multi-let portfolio. And I think once that portfolio had been seen with their eyes in, in their ownership um, and we really kind of unpacked the service industrial uh, strategy a little bit more um, and developed it internally we took the decision strategically to announce the market in in march 2018 that we were going to sell everything in our portfolio to reinvest into multi-let industrial and become a focused multi-let industrial operating company so mm. it didn't take that long to go from we're going to buy a portfolio we're going to build on the portfolio to that's all we're going to do um, and i think that that's sort of is due to the sort of the strength of the argument for, for and the business That's case cool. for doing what we're doing, and uh, and it's been I think it's refreshing actually for Paul um, as it has been for me to really focus and 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 drive in one direction and and you know every morning we wake up and all we think about is multi industrial operating platforms and, and portfolios and because Stemprop was traditionally a very versatile opportunistic business 
Yeah. Um, and so it's been a real change for, for him and as it as it was for me back in sort of 2015. And it's been it's been great, actually. It's quite cool because um, most companies that get acquired kind of get subsumed by their parent business. And you've done the opposite. You've been acquired and you've actually started to influence and change the direction of your parent company. And uh, Paul seems to have become as much like a, a partner as a sort of boss who you're <laughs> keen yeah, no, very to get much rid of. So. Yeah, yeah, no, we're, we're, we're an executive team. We're driving the business forward together. It's The relationship's really strong. And, and it's, you know, I, I was probably, I don't know if you found the same thing as a as a sort of, an entrepreneur running your own business that once you set your own business up and you've done it for a while you sort of feel like you're, you're broadly unemployable um this is it this is the end game you know i didn't i didn't ever see myself so. going back to a kind of a corporate lifestyle and you know look at us sitting here now we're both <laughs> in a different <laughs> position um and uh but actually you know I, i'm loving it i think it's fantastic and i think that for me you know my my heart and, and love is in the multi-industrial market and I'm passionate about it and I see this opportunity being a fantastic one and, and a way we can really revolutionize the multi-industrial space and and that gets me really really excited but that combined with Stenprop's capital structure you know we're a permanent capital vehicle we, we, we're listed yeah. perpetually you know we never have to return the money to investors we're not got a five-year fund the listing you listed last year is that yeah, right we listed yeah, yeah in, yeah, in, in uh, 2018 and on well we were already listed but we listed in london last year um and that that actually fits very well with what we're doing you know we're an internalized management team we're holding our assets in in theory forever we can afford to invest in our platform mm. for the long term and that's really the big change and and we what we've seen you know we talked before about how uh you know Multi-level industrial left those kind of long-term ownership into short-term ownership in the global financial crisis in the PE model. And we have seen to, to a reasonably large degree that turning back again, back into the long-term holder's hands. And, and I think we're a good example of that. You know, it's coming, most of who we're buying out of is, is short-term holders. And they've done well. They bought, bought at the bottom. They're selling you know, near the top. Well done. They've made a good profit. But now we're yeah. saying that we're going to buy this and we're going to hold it forever. And we're going to really focus on the operation of that 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 uh, sector and, and those assets so it fits really nicely with with my vision and and what we want to do and, and it's it's a very neat fit yeah that's great it's a good story so what uh what do you think the end game is for you guys i mean presumably if you if you carry on to build up scale from where you are today uh stay conservatively financed and build a very good operating platform, which is efficient, which demonstrates that multi-let industrial can be run efficiently using technology. And I'd imagine that that the both the assets and the operating platform are going to be extremely appealing to a larger buyer, be it a, I don't know, a Logicor or a Blackstone or someone like that. Do you think that's a possible end game, or would or would you rather keep it independent for as long as possible? Yeah, I mean, I think our goals are we've got three things or four things we're really working on at the moment. One, we're, we need to complete our transition into a purpose or a fully focused multi-layer industrial business. So we need to sell all of our non-industrial and, and reinvest that into multi-layer. And that's going to take a couple more years. So mm. first thing we've got to do, the second thing we've got to do is bring our leverage down. And we're targeting 40% loan to value by March next year. We, we've already brought it down from 57 when we did the, in, the C2 deal back in uh, June 2017. So we're very much on track for that. So those are the sort of two corporate goals. I think the uh, the platform goal is is the other key thing, and there's two elements to that which you touched on. Really, the first one is efficiency. We want to build the most efficient multi-let industrial operating platform in the country, hopefully the world, um, but certainly uh, in the UK, so we can really prove that 
multi-let can be managed efficiently. And I think if we can do that, it should help re-rate the sector to some extent. Um, and the other really key goal for us is to generate the highest revenue generating multi-let industrial platform. And that's where the service piece comes in. So, mm. you know, it's not just about, I'm going to sell some space to this customer. It's about, I'm going to sell them some space. And on the back of that, I'm going to sell them some insurance, some cleaning, some bins, some phones, some broadband, some gas, you name it. There's a whole heap of other non-core services which yeah. our customers consume, which uh, which the first thing they do in that buying journey is buy the space. So Are you well starting to do that? that? Yeah, so we're already doing that to a limited extent. But part of what we're doing on our platform play is to enable us to do that much more easily yeah um, you package it up and sell it as a and working with partners you know we don't want to be cool. a utilities provider we don't want to be a yeah. bin business but, but <laughs> what we want to do is be able to offer that to our customers in a seamless frictionless transaction and that's what our role is is to provide that that seamless and frictionless process so that's that's do you, think uh, you can re-rate the rents if you're able to do it from five pounds a foot to nine pounds a foot or whatever the number is in the same way that service office providers have completely re-rated the price per square foot they charge by packaging it up and charging a, a, a per desk rate effectively. Absolutely. There's, there's a value in convenience, right? And, and I think we, we've seen that in the serviced office market. We've seen it in the hotels market. We see, yep, we've seen yep, it in the true, certainly self-storage is a really good example. You can go and rent a garage from some guy on the street or you can go into a self-storage business and it's super simple and straightforward. You know, like yep. you, pay, you pay three or four times as much. So it's, there is a value in convenience. There's a value in service, which I think is in, indisputable. And I think that in the multi-let industrial market, it's just not being done to, to any great degree. There are companies out there doing it, don't get me wrong, but certainly on scale that there isn't. And so we think there's there's huge opportunity there. But that that and that's part of our, our plan. And I think if we achieve those mm. four things um, as a business, then we'll have some options available to us. And I think we're we're listed as you as you point on the London Stock Exchange, and we're also listed in on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Mm. Both um, maybe not the moment for Johannesburg, but traditionally <laughs> um, both are very good markets for raising money. Um, we hope to be able to raise more money and grow this business and, and see where that takes us. But I think converting to being a purpose multi-let industrial business is the first the first hurdle, and then building the platform is uh, is the second. So, you know, we we remain open to opportunity. Really, great, brilliant. Thank you very much for your time, Julian. Pleasure. I think that's everything for me. Unless there's, unless there's something anything else you want to say. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Thank you.